The moment you start your business, you wear every single hat in the business. And your job as CEO is to hand those hats to other people as the business grows, to people that might not even be better at doing those things than you, but but people whose time is better suited to, you know, to, to taking on those tasks. And ultimately, your job is to hand off the last hat, right? To hand off the CEO hat at the end of the journey. Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized, and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn Music Factory. And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio. And we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school. So get ready to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure music school. Hey, welcome back to the Seven Figure Music School podcast. Today, we are joined by Jeff Homer of Ensemble Schools. Um, And I'm excited to talk to Jeff today because Jeff owns 37 music schools. (laughs) And he owns this many schools because he has bought or acquired these schools over the past few years. Uh, So today, we're going to dive into what Jeff has learned. And I would cover what you can learn from this as well. So uh, welcome, Jeff. Glad you're on. Yeah, thanks for being here. I've been following the podcast since you guys launched, and I'm excited to be part of it. Cool. So I want to jump into my first question right off. Um, give us a breakdown on the schools that you own. Uh, what are the sizes of these schools that you own, you know, range from small to large? Sure. So our smallest school track, our, our smallest schools track our smallest markets. Um, and, you know, so we have a few schools that have maybe like 120 to 150 students um, and, you know, 250 to $300,000 of revenue. Um, and those are um, typically schools we acquired sort of early on. Um, today, our floor, you know, for schools that we're looking to acquire is usually four or $500,000 of revenue, um, you know, which is somewhere between two and 300 students, depending on pricing. Um, and our largest yeah. schools, um, which is sort of fun given the name of your podcast, we actually own five seven-figure music schools, independent brands that do seven figures of revenue. Okay. Um, so yeah, excited to feature them on the okay. podcast. Yes. How many of those five were over seven figures when you got them? Yeah, all of them. Were they already uh, there? Yeah, all of them. So nice. Um, it's you know we've definitely been successful in growing you know most of the schools that we've acquired um, and. That's sort of part of our, you know, that's part of our commitment to the folks that sold us those schools is that we're going to take good care of the communities that they've worked really hard to build um, and that we're going to use our sort of scale and resources behind the scenes to grow and and, um, just welcome new people into that community. Um, But uh, in terms of the magic line in the sand, um, you know, we've all all five of the schools were were there when we bought them and uh, yeah, have continued to succeed under our under our ownership. Okay. You know, so I think one of the things that we want to explore in this conversation today is just what separates, um, what separates a seven figure school like that from, from a school that's much smaller. Mm -hmm. And something I've heard you say is that there are two things that schools typically under invest in. One is scaled processes. One is marketing. And I'd like to maybe just 
first start by having you unpack that. What do you mean when you say that schools underinvest in, especially especially scale processes? I think people understand the idea of marketing and what that entails. But yeah. even for me, I know that can be a really loaded statement. And and to speak, you know, in Nate's terms, that's the third bucket area. Like, what do you mean when you say that they underinvest in scaled processes? Sure. So let's just take a step back and think about, you know, what is a million dollars of revenue for a music school, right? So depending yeah. on, so, so for most of our schools, you know, we're in sub- suburbs of major markets. We're charging, you know, somewhere between 80 and $100 an hour for music lessons. You know, for our schools, a million dollars of revenue is between 450 to 500 students a week, right? Um, I know that both you guys have very successful group programs and camps and things like that. That's not something that's been an emphasis at many of the schools we've acquired. And so, you know, for us, we're mostly doing weekly private lessons. That's the core of our business. And we like the we like the recurring nature mm-hmm. of that and the that kind of rock solid bond between the student and teacher. That's what we think of as being the core of our business. Um so 450, 500 students, call it 500 to use a round number, right? So we have 500 students that are coming to our studio yeah. every week. That means we have 25 to 30 teachers at those at those schools, given, you know, given the size of that. That means like, you know, almost every day someone's calling out, you know, or coming late or, you know, some, there's something wrong. Like almost, you know, almost every week someone's making an availability change. Almost every month one of those teachers is turning over. Like all of the things that you guys have talked about in prior sort of more operationally intensive episodes, they're happening at an incredibly fast or high frequency. And that's just because of scale. And, you know, mm. almost every day there's an upset parent about something. Almost like the, the velocity of the right. business is just higher. And so what it requires is having a really competent administrative staff that is big enough to handle that. Um, I, you know, I, I looked this up so that I could give you this number, but we spend an average of $200,000 on administrative staff at our seven figure music schools. And it's because we need that first line of defense to take care of those day to day things that just happen so much so that we can actually run the business. Um, and so that's, that's what, that's where it starts, right? It's like, these things are going to happen all the time and you can't deal with them ad hoc. They can't be just sort yeah. of, we, we can't, we can't fly by the seat of their pants doing this. And in some ways it's almost the reverse causation, right? The frequency forces us to get used to doing them, to processize these things, to push them further down in the organization mm-hmm. so that, you know, anybody who sits at the desk can handle any of these sort of daily things anytime. So it's, it's almost sort of, you know, reverse causation in some ways, but, but that's what I mean is that just the, the idea that the owner is going to have a one-to-one relationship with every parent is not possible at that scale. And so we need to push it farther down in the business. And that's what scale process means. You know, I want to kick it over to Nate here in a second, but Jeff, you're telling me that you're not on the phone on Sunday nights scheduling makeup lessons for these schools. I'm kidding, of course. (laughs) (laughs) um, So, so let me, let me make sure that I'm understanding before I kick it over to Nate. Um, so when you're saying investing in scaled processes, you're not talking about investment in, you know, an employee handbook, though that is part of it. You're really talking about investing in the team that automates the school. I, I think all of the above, right? So we need a high quality okay. desk staff that's capable of taking what comes on a daily basis, right? You know, they are 
they are really good at their jobs. Um, and we really value them for being really good at their jobs uh, because it's a special type of person that can that can sit at a desk where the phone rings constantly, right? With great things, right? I want to sign up for lessons. I want to do this. Like, you know, we're having a great time. We want to, like, there's lots of really positive things that are happening, but the velocity is really hot. And so you need a high capacity person that's going to be able to do that. And high capacity people are valuable and, mm. you know, we have to pay them all. Um, so, no, I think there's, there's that. And then there's, then there's standardization, right? So when you have a when you have a, a team like that, handoff from person like no one person can hold all that stuff in their head, right? There's going to be handoff from person to person, and right. that's where the standardization comes. As long as as soon as you get to the business where either you personally as the owner or the general manager as an individual can no longer perform all of the main functions as one person, you need to standardize, right? You need to have a next man up mentality where the next person who comes in and sits in the seat knows what knows what happened previously and is able to recognize because the process is standardized what has happened what needs to happen you know what to do when something comes up and then how to communicate that at the end of their shift so that the the team can function as you know as an individual would for a smaller school I love that you're just throwing out numbers like you do cuz I know that's one of your superpowers you're a numbers person and so I love that you're like we invest on average 200k in admin staff for a seven-figure music school, I was literally just looking at the Brooklyn Music Factory um, five-year comps on our admin line, and we're at about twenty-six percent on average of of our gross that goes to admin, um, and it's always a push-me-pull-me me between the cost of labor or the amount we're spending in direct costs to the teachers versus that support admin. Um, I feel like I'm constantly trying to balance that, trying to figure out what percentage goes to direct costs like teachers versus what percentage to go, goes to these, you know, high capacity um, admin people that are like you're right are essential to running a to running a great sustainable music school. I'm curious, just in all your conversations with the GMs, et cetera, at the at at these five seven figure music schools, is that a that push me, pull me. Is that a is that a common theme that you guys wrestle with um, between understanding your cost of labor percentage? So something that's that is different about ensemble in this context is that we have a corporate layer, right? We have a an ensemble set of shared services right. that we offer to our schools, and I was not counting that figure when I was thinking about what the cost of the, the staff at the school is. So we provide heavy right. duty marketing, recruiting, teacher recruiting, and sort of hiring, onboarding, finance, accounting, payroll, tax, compliance, and IT services to the schools, right? So that's part of kind of our mm. brand promise, if you will, you know, from at the ensemble level to a, to a seller is, hey, we're going to take this, this wonderful school that you have. We're going to keep all the people that are there today. We're going to equip them with these really great resources to maximize the, the success of the school going forward. I'm not counting any of those things. And, you know, Nate, you and I have talked briefly about, you know, about your school at a high level. My understanding is that you have, um, you know, dedicated marketing people and like this. So like that's cost that's extra. That's, you know, that's not accounted for in that 200K that I'm talking about. I'm talking about just bodies Mm. at the desk. Um, So I think it's a lot more. I, I think, you know, the relationship we try to have with our schools is very clear cut where we are trying to provide them with everything they need to for their job to be customer service driven, right? Take care of the people that walk through your door, 
students, parents, teachers, if you do a good job of taking care of their needs, we can do everything else that you're looking for. And so that's that's kind of the division of labor that we that we put in place. And so, you know, mm-hmm. there, of course, there's a of course, there's a push and pull where every GM wants more staff. Right. I need more staff. I'm so busy. You know, we're and, and so th- there's there's definitely that when we sit down and we think about, OK, right. you know, what times of day, what's causing this? You know, what can we do? Like and and that's where that's where process gets built. Right. It's like because we can throw more bodies at this, um, but we can also think about what is the root cause of the problem that we're having? Where are our bottlenecks? Where are where is our slack capacity? How do we time shift work away from peak hours? How do we, you know, um, you know, otherwise remove you know problems that we're having? And then, to me, our last resort is to throw a body at a problem because you know, one, it's expensive, but two, it's an mm. it's it's a lost opportunity to increase the capacity of the business through process and standardization. We've kind of gotten into the weeds here. I want to pull it back up to the the fifty thousand foot level because we talked about investing in in scaled processes, and you gave some really good thinking around that. I want to talk about investing in the marketing side of things because, again, you said that barriers to reaching that seven figure level are often because there's an underinvestment in in team and scale processes. There's also an underinvestment in marketing, mm-hmm. and I have a hunch of what you're going to say, but your experience is going to be invaluable here. So um, maybe give some ideas as to what it means to underinvest on the marketing side of things, whether that's simple or complex. We'd love to hear it. Sure. So I'm going to start by referring everyone back to your marketing big three or your Google big three episode. That is 90% of our secret sauce. Mm. We think we do it really well. There's some stuff we mm. do in those buckets that's probably not accessible to you know every listener, but like that is that is the playbook, you know. So go listen to Daniel. He gave you, you know, he gave you thousands of dollars worth of advice for free on the podcast. Uh, maybe you guys can link to that. But um, I think you know the most common issue is irrespective of the level of marketing budget, and it's usually very low. It's it's not it's not uncommon for us to see a very arbitrary you know budget that's very small relative to the size of the school. But the problem mm-hmm. is the budget is arbitrary. There's no thought to what should my marketing budget be, right? That's not a muscle that that school owners have. And marketing feels like a black hole. You dump money in it. You get some stuff back. You're not sure what's working, right? Like 50% of my marketing is wasted. I just, I just don't know which half. Like that's, these are common problems in, you know, in, in the marketing world. And yeah. there's, there is a framework for thinking about what that should be. And it, it starts with what is my customer worth and what does it cost to acquire them? Right. Those are that's sort of a that's a those that's sort of a fundamentals from the world of subscription services. Right. So in a way, you know, we're, we're selling a subscription service for most of our products. Right. You come you come you pay by the month. You come every month until you tell us otherwise. Um, and so, you know, the, subscri- the subscription software world thinks about what does it cost to acquire a customer? What is that customer worth over time? And, you know, we can't we can get to the we can get to the heart of that question. And it will tell us what we should be spending on marketing because we, we're going to know what our payback is from a new student. We're going to know how many students we get per dollar, you know, for every dollar, we every incremental dollar we invest. And we can watch that change as we increase the budget, right? Because naturally the incremental client is harder to find. It's harder to get in front of them. It's more expensive. They're, they're less likely to convert, you know. And so our, our acquisition costs will grow the more money we spend on marketing. But 
we're starting from a place where the, the, the starting value of the customer is so much higher than what we, than what we uh, pay to acquire them that we just we start increasing the budget until we find the place where, to us, the return on marketing spend is where we'd like it to be. But it, it's usually Interesting. incredibly high. I mean, our, our estimate of hmm. you know, customer lifetime value for our businesses is between two and $3,000 of gross profit, not of revenue, gross profit. And we can typically acquire a customer hmm. using mostly Daniel's frameworks um, for between two and $300, right? That is a 10x return on marketing spend. Mm. There is almost nowhere else in the world you can deposit $1 and get $10 back with relative confidence at relative scale. Um, and mm. yet we as school owners don't look into this bucket because it's not pedagogy. It's not fun. It's not our, our, our area of expertise. And as a result, it gets sort of ignored or it gets relative, relegated to a bucket that's like, I know I should be doing some of this. Here's some, right? Here's some budget. And that's the end of it, right? Is we like we hire somebody, they tell us it's going to be X a month to do this. We pay X a month and we just never think about it again. And in terms of if you're serious about growing your studio and getting to, you know, the seven figure level or whatever goal, you know, might be appropriate. Marketing has to be part of that equation, right? How are we going to get new students in the door? I mean, we, we our current student population is fundamentally a leaky bucket, right? Some of them are going to quit at some point, Right. They're not all going to stay with us forever. And so we have like new student acquisition has to be part of that conversation of like, it's, it's almost the, like, it's the only determining factor of whether we're going to get to a seven figure music school. Like, yeah, we have to develop processes to serve those students once we get them, but we have to get them first. And that's just not a muscle that I've encountered frequently from school owners when I've talked to them. I don't know about you, but I didn't get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS. And we look forward to answering your questions. Now, when you acquire these schools, more than likely they're already doing marketing of some kind. Would you say that the margin is there already in the school to do that, to make that investment, to increase that spend? Or is there something that you're doing when you acquire a school that gives you more margin or, or, or gives you more uh, room to play with, you know? Sure. I mean, we do think that we're better at this on average because we, there's a few reasons for that, right? We have some built-in advantages, right? So we, because we have 37 schools, we have some SEO search engine, search engine optimization advantages that single schools will not have, right? So we have, we are sort of tied together in the eyes of Google and that gives us, you know, sort of a little bit, you know, allows our individual schools to punch above their weight. You know, that's, yeah. that's not replicable. We have all the data in terms of targeting and conversions and that sort of thing that we have across our schools. So when we spin up a new school, you know, we're not starting from scratch. We're starting from, you know, 95% of the way there with a little bit of local, tar- you know, local tweaking that's needed to really dial it in. Um, but but it's, it's, it's an optimization, right? Our, our typical, like we're probably... 
two to five xing the previous owner's marketing budget and doing so with glee. Um, and, um, you know, I get that, 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 that money, you know, comes out of the owner's, you know, paycheck, right. It's, it's money that would otherwise they'd be taking home to their family. So I get that it's a scary thing, but it's, you know, it's so small in comparison to the potential that it, that it generates. And so, you know, I can think of a few times where, you know, there were, there were owners that were doing things that, you know, maybe were less effective than we, than we would have liked. And, you know, we kind of kept the marketing budget the same, but maybe improved the the mix of marketing spend. But, you know, we're almost always mm. spending tens of thousands of dollars more than the outgoing owner on marketing and doing so with really good results. If you could give one piece of advice to a school, let's say that's at the 100 to 200 student level that would perhaps that owner's thinking in their head, man, I'd love for Jeff to buy my school someday. What advice would you give to them around the marketing bucket on how to make their school more desirable for you? They just need to grow the school, right? So they, they need to spend the money, not 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 because we're going to inherit those marketing processes. To be honest with you, we're going to rip them out on the day, you know, on the day that we close. Um, yeah. But it's more, but it's it's hmm. more around just getting to the size that that is that is going to maximize value for them, right? I mean, whether it's selling to us or we're selling to you know selling to a teacher or selling to somebody in the local market, right? These are all common ways that schools, when owners are approaching retirement age or relocating or choosing to focus on family or you know other business interests, like you know, there's lots of reasons why these change hands. It's you know, in order to maximize value to you know to any seller or buyer, excuse me. Um, you know, we want to grow the school. And I, I think it's, it's, it, it's the piece of advice that you're asking for would be to set aside a meaningful amount of money relative to the school. And that can, that can mean whatever it means to you. It might be a few thousand dollars, might be as much as $10,000 and just try it, right? Set aside that money, write it off as an experiment in mm. your mind and see what you get. And I think generally speaking, you'll be shocked by the number of leads that come in and you'll be, you'll, Consider it an absolute no-brainer to continue spending that money in the future. That is just a perfect concept. And I'll even add this before I kick it over to Nate, that there's a lot of schools that are smaller that come to, to grow, uh, to grow your music studio. And they're, they're a little, they have some trepidation even in investing in their own growth as a business person and marketer. What I've typically seen is that if they're willing to invest in themselves, that's exactly what they get back is more leads, more students, uh, and the better marketing overall, you know, the messaging work we do with them, all those sorts of things end up leading to them giving people a better experience as they grow their school, which means that those kids stay longer. So the retention's better. Yeah. Any, any investment in marketing is, is going to pay you back. And I'll add to that any investment that could include improving your own skills as a marketer, because that's the job of the school owner at the very beginning. It's one of the last things that you, you have to give up. Can I interject one, one thing there? I think there's a, one of the hesitations is, or can be, you know, like, what are we doing this for? Right? Like, why am I trying to grow the the studio? You know, like what, you know, is it just for me? And I, I think we're like, there are so many advantages to having a growing community for the members of the community, right? It is absolutely a positive mm. for the teachers to have really good marketing so that we can make sure that their schedules are full. 
so that when we hire a new teacher, we're able to give them mm-hmm. a lot of work, you know, very quickly and get them on board and get them, you know, earning a living out of the box. It is absolutely a positive for, for other students to see new students coming into the studio and having success and having a good time and, um, you know, being being potential partners in chamber music or, you know, rock bands or, you know, other, you know, performance opportunities or just the, the community, the growth of the community is a positive into itself, even if it were not a financial benefit to the school. Obviously, it is. It's a huge benefit. And it's more so because of the operating leverage that exists in a music school, meaning there's a relatively high percentage of fixed costs. So the incremental student is much more profitable than the prior student because you've already paid for your space and your admin and all that kind of stuff. And you're, you're, you know, you're just paying the teacher for the incremental amount of time, but there's, there are benefits to growing the community that are worth it for themselves and for, you know, the teaching staff in particular. And so, you know, if we want to be the best music school, we can be to attract the best teachers we can have. Marketing is an important part of attracting good teachers and being able to fill their schedules and having a reputation for, Hey, I joined X school you know, I already have 25 students. I'm really happy. I'm thinking about adding more time. You know, that is how we market in the teacher community. And I think, I think that's probably an underappreciated benefit of being really good at this kind of stuff. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind giving, what's the percentage of gross that you think a healthy school is allocating towards marketing? Um, I sort of know what the national average is, but I'm curious where you guys have landed. If you've got that digit. Yeah, I'm doing some quick math in my head. My guess is across our business, we're averaging five or six percent. Um, mm. I could check that for you, but that's my gut feeling is that that's about where we are. Is percent percent of gross is about five or six thousand dollars, or five sorry five or six percent sorry many many thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. That can be super helpful because that helps a smaller school who's got, say, $100,000 in gross a year think, yeah. okay, wait, should I, I, can I really sp- afford to spend $5,000? And you're really saying you can't afford not to spend yeah, $5,000 it's, it's actually probably the, the smaller the school, the higher the percentage, right? So, you know, we're not, you know, we're not. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like. Like we don't have any schools where we're spending less than $20,000 a year on marketing. That's like our base, that's like our base budget. Right. So, you know, it's 10% for the schools that are in the kind of 300 K range because we want to get them out of there. Right. We want to grow the school past that level. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we, we've talked about bucket three, we've talked about bucket one and and how schools often underinvest. I think this is really where this whole conversation has been driving to. Um, and as we, you know, Jeff, as you and I were trading emails prior to recording the podcast, we talked about, hey, you know, what could we focus on? And this is really the question I have then. Um, what do you think makes a school reach seven figures? Um, are, you know, how do you even categorize that in your head? Is there a checklist of success factors or habits of the owner? Do they, uh, you know, meditate every day? Do they get up at 5 a.m.? Like, what do you see as common, yeah, common uh, characteristics between these school these schools that you all own, that Ensemble owns, that have reached seven figures? I'm curious. Sure. So th- there's a few, there's a couple, there's two buckets I'm going to put stuff into, right? There's things that are kind of, fixed at the moment you start the school, 
which are important and and um, have a high impact on the probability of success, but which are really hard to change once you get started, right? So the things that are in that bucket are size of market, right? It's going to be really hard to run a seven-figure music school in a town of 50,000 people, right? It's just, it's going to be hard to find enough teachers. So that's an important one. There's also sort of a product market fit question, right? So are you offering something that the local community is looking for in a way that doesn't require a huge amount of education of the populace, right? So, you know, for us, Mm. are even the kind of the genres that are emphasized differ a little bit around the country, right? Um, You know, for some of our, you know, some of our like Northern California markets, Parents are looking for classical music education for their kids, right? We could start a rock band program. It would be really fun. I'm sure that the kids will get a lot of value with that, but it would require an incredible investment in educating those parents of why this, they should be looking for this, right? Instead, we can just respond to their natural instinct of what they're looking for, and that's going to differ across. So there's a, there's a product market mm. fit question of like, are we trying to create demand for something or are we responding to demand that already exists? And particularly given that, you know, many school owners are not the best marketers and have not made the investments that we think they could be making, product market fit is often one of the major drivers of how people get there without marketing, right? It's because they they have a product, it's in a market that's big enough with enough students that are looking for music lessons where word of mouth and, and just a great experience, which most school owners are great at delivering, right? Like bucket two, bucket four, these are not usually challenges for, you know, for school owners. Um, so the schools that got there without tremendous success in the other buckets got there through, you know, a, the right market that didn't have a ton of competition where they were offering something they were looking for. And, you know, that can be done through market research and whatever, but like at the moment you open your doors, it's sort of fixed. Um, and then the last one is building mm-hmm. size, right? So uh, unfortunately, you know, we can only run about 80 students through a studio room every week, right? I mean, we have some markets where we do better with things like homeschool and adult students to, to, to lengthen the lesson day, you know, outside of kind of two to eight, three to nine, whatever it is in, in your area. But fundamentally, you know, I consider kind of the prime times to be, you know, Monday to Thursday, two to eight, Saturday, nine to three, that's 30 hours a week, that's 60 students, you know, that's, that's gonna, that's gonna govern how many kids we can, we can run through the building in a week. And obviously, I know that both of you Mm. have have great, you know, group programs, and there's, there's ways of, of getting at that. Um, But anyway, so, so those are, those are kind of the structural factors that I think are, are important, and maybe are, you know, unfortunately, they're not as controllable once you get in there, but like they, they do matter. Right. And so some some of those things might determine whether seven figures is the right goal for someone to have. Right. It, it may not be possible in a four in a four room studio in a smaller town in you know, yeah. wherever. Right. But that that doesn't mean we can't have a really wonderful, you know, profitable business. But and then on the on the operation side, it goes back to, to what we you know, what we kind of said in relation to the first question you asked me, which is the velocity of these schools is really high and can you handle it, right? Does your customer experience decline mm-hmm. as the number of students grows such that you plateau around wherever your operational bottleneck exists, right? Because if, you know, if things like mm-hmm. churn start to increase as we get more students and they have a worse experience, such that our return on marketing spend starts to decrease, such that like some of our things start to get out of whack, like there might be 
there are operational constraints that might limit the ceiling, the reasonable ceiling in terms of number of schools, because the experience declines, phones not answered, schedule is wrong, I made a billing mistake, like I'm frustrated, right? And the, the level of frustration, you know, can increase with the number of students. Um, and so that's where, that's where bucket three to me comes in. And, you know, we can't get there without bucket one, meaning, you know, if we don't market to students, we won't, we won't grow to that level. But if we can't manage that number of students, once we get there, we won't, it, it, it won't last. We'll turn around and we'll go the other direction and we'll have tarnished our reputation in doing that. Right. People, there'll be a lot of people out there that have had a negative experience with, you know, with our schools. Um, and so I, I think of ensemble as a bucket three business, right? That is what we do. We, you know, we find schools that have established, you know, that have really established reputations and wonderful communities and great people. And, you know, we help install infrastructure for growth and then we power that growth through marketing. Um, and so I think, you know, I think what that comes down to is making sure that, the, you know, the desk is appropriately staffed for the number of, you know, for the number of people that that desk staff is empowered. And we talked about that earlier so that they don't have to check with, you know, you, the owner at, at every moment to get things done. They can, it, which also takes more time, right? You know, hang up the phone. I'll check with the owner. I got to get, get the owner. Oh, the owner is somewhere else. I didn't pick, you know, didn't pick up the phone. Can't answer. Oh, I forgot. Oh, you know, like, you know, so, so improving speed of decision at the, you know, at the, the moment of, of client interaction has all these downstream benefits in terms of reducing the amount of work it takes to actually serve that client. And so making sure that whoever is at the desk feels empowered to make decisions, has a framework for making those decisions, is getting regular feedback on decisions and improving them as they go, you know, will result as the school grows in you reaching 500 students with a rockstar team, right? They'll have built their muscles as we grew the student base and we'll get to that level with, you know, three to five people that are really good at what they do and are able to deliver that experience at scale. And, you know, some of it is getting the owner out of the way, right? Like it doesn't, ha it can't go through you, you know, it, it as a, you know, if, if, if seven figures is your aspiration, you know, you have to have proxies. You can, you, you already know you can't teach all the students, right? You're going to have people teach them for you. And you, you also can't, you know, handle all the admin right. stuff yourself. You're going to have to, to, to get to come to peace with that as well. And so that I think is, you know, it's, it's about creating processes, getting buy-in from the staff on those processes, and then letting them run the business and um, trusting that they care, that they're going to make decisions with the best of intentions, that they're going to get it right 90% of the time, and that we're going to live with the 10% as a cost of, 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 you know, running the business in this way. And that, most of the of the mistakes in air quotes in that bucket are not going to cost very much mm. and they're going to be in the client's favor right more likely than not they're going to give a makeup that maybe we wouldn't have wanted them to give or they're going to refund a month of tuition they're going to take the, they're going to take the client friendly approach and that's probably the right decision to the, the right way to air anyway so I, I think it's it's you know it comes down to you know the staff having what they, you know, having processes for, you know, for running the school and being allowed to go do it. Mm. You know, uh, Jeff, we hear this all the time from our listeners who are just trying to figure out how to build team. And it seems to me like you're essentially like for anybody, first of all, for anybody who's listening, you need to rewind tape and write down a whole pile of what Jeff said. Um, because he even just for a moment touched on that inventory piece when he when he drops a bomb like you can do 80 cents uh, sorry 80 students per week when you're maximizing a single studio he's basically doing a lot of the work for us he's saying look 
doesn't matter whether you're a three studio school or a 10 studio school, here's what your inventory is, right? Um, it's a really important piece, but you're also getting into this idea of just like, what does it mean to actually begin to have a team that can take a lot of the burden off you as the owner or the founder and allow you to, to go in the lane that's so that's really energizing for you yourself. Um, which brings me back to a question Daniel just asked. He sort of touched on it briefly. Um, and I'm really curious about sort of personality traits. Can you give us like two or three personality traits? Like what do you find in these owners that gives them the strength to actually move from a place of trying to control everything to only controlling what matters in their in their role. I, you know, I'm talking to school owners all the time and about their life's work, right? About the years they've spent building the studio and how it went. And, you know, they're really interesting stories. They're really interesting people. And I love it. And it's, you know, we're making a commitment to, to continue that work, right? Where we're saying, hey, we're going to be responsible for your school going forward. We're going to nurture this community. You're going to recognize it when you come back. We're not going to make, you know, big changes to that. So it's an important part of, of what we do. But one of my favorite questions to ask an owner for myself is, you know, what do you do day to day and what does your staff do? Right. Because to me, that's really revealing about what I'm going to have to face when I get in the seat. Right. So when when it's on us instead of on instead of on them, um, you know, how are we going to uh, what what are we going to be up against? Right. You know, what what is the capacity of the staff today to hand to, to run the business and what has the owner delegated to them? And what are we going to have to, you know, work to build either process or just personal skills or, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, whatever that whatever that ends up being. But you know, what are we going to have to what are we going to have to be responsible for on, on day one? And, what, and how where is the staff starting from? Um, and, and I think there there is a um, there is a necessity of letting go in getting to a business of this size where, and I mentioned it before kind of flippantly, but like, it's just not, it's not possible to do it all yourself. And for some people, that's a really frightening fact, right? And they want to keep the school at a level where it feels manageable. It feels personable. They are, they, they, they have a really strong presence and they're very visible in the community. Those are, those are personality traits that will lead an owner to have maybe a really wonderful experience. Maybe that's exactly the type of business they want to run and that's okay. But in terms of, you know, the difference between that owner who, who, who held on really tight, wanted to make sure that everybody had a great experience personally. And the, the owner who moved on to being a CEO of a business instead of a sole proprietor, they had to let other people take those jobs. Right. Um, there's a there's a funny quip about building a business, right? Which is that at the at the moment you start your business, you wear every single hat in the business, and your job as CEO is to hand those hats to other people as the business grows, to people that might not even be better at doing those things than you, but but people whose time is better suited to you know to to taking on those tasks, and ultimately your job is to hand off the last hat, right? To hand off the CEO hat at the end of the journey. And, you know, we hope to be a, a capable recipient of that, uh, of that hat and to do a good job in that role. But that mindset of my business is growing, my personal capacity is not, I'm going to need help. How do I find help in these areas? It's going to give me leverage on my time. 
it's a that is a growth mindset and and, and in some ways sort of a a, a I don't know a belief in in the ability of others to see a vision and to identify with it and to also work really hard in that same direction and that's that to me is the owners that made it hey it's nate again you know every year at brooklyn music factory we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families and you want to know how because we ask them and they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them and so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.